Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. My guest and co-host today is magician, author, actor, musician, and inventor, Penn Gillette. Penn and I talk about the allure of magic and the need for skepticism, how he thought he was following in Bob Dylan's footsteps, what he learned on Celebrity Apprentice, how he fell out of favor with Donald Trump, early loves, predicting the future, and a lot more. Our first call today is with Ashley, who married her boyfriend in a rushed courthouse ceremony so he could apply for a green card. As a result, both families of the couple are questioning the decision and are quick to offer their opinions. Next, we talk with Anne, who is finding it difficult to move on after her long-distance boyfriend ended the relationship with no warning. Anne wonders what went wrong and how to get over what she thought was a good relationship. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, just look for the link in our show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. I know that you are more than a magician. And you know why? Because you can't be less than a magician. (laughs) (laughs) Are you in Vegas right now? I am in Las Vegas right now, yeah. What are your feelings about Vegas? Well, I lived in New York for a long time. And when you leave New York, you're not going anywhere. I mean, that's the only place you want to live is New York. But Las Vegas had a lot of pragmatic reasons to move here. And Las Vegas is a very, very strange city. You know, I never had a drink of alcohol in my life, no recreational drugs, and I don't gamble. And as Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols said of Berlin, is he maybe even truer of Vegas? It's a cheap holiday in other people's misery. It's very weird that we have an economy that's run entirely, not entirely, but very close. With like hopes and dreams that won't come true? Yeah. Hopes and dreams that won't come true is a nice way to put it. But it's a very strange thing. And all the same, we end up being a suburban community that supports this, you know, two miles of the strip. And it's very strange, but I've grown to like it. I live a rather uh, secluded life here. You know, we park right at the back of our theater and just walk in. There's not much contact with the casinos. And I think it's a fine place to live if you can get your culture from L.A., Chicago, New York, and London. You know, if you're fortunate enough to travel. I mean, I see plays, but I don't see them in Vegas. It's that kind of thing. So there's nothing about it that satisfies the feeling of home? Oh, sure. It has all that. I have a family and I have a very, very nice home and I really feel part of the community. But culturally, it's a different thing than a real big city. I wanted to ask you, because it's just too intriguing to me, about your experience with our former president. Uh, Yeah, I knew him back when he was destroying Atlantic City. I knew him when he was just a joke. I did two tours of duty on Celebrity Apprentice. 
I was once told by Donald Trump Jr. that he thought I was the only person he ever met who sincerely liked his father. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he asked me why. Why, of all the people that interacted with him, I seem to be comfortable with him. And it's because I have tremendous tolerance for eccentricity. I'm the person that homeless people come up to and talk to, and I talk comfortably with them. I was living on the streets for a few years, and I was very comfortable talking to Hells Angels and drug dealers and anybody at all. And I have a respect is not the right word, and curiosity is not the right word, but some hybrid of those for people with tremendous eccentricity, like people who have brain damage, you know, give us incredible insights into how our brains work, how mysterious that is. So people who found a way to circumvent filters. I mean, Bob Dylan has done it purely with genius and willpower. Tiny Tim was able to do it with probably, and I'm not a doctor, but probably some version of something on the spectrum. Others do it with drug use and with a kind of complete lack of shame and a complete lack of empathy that I've never seen before in any human being, Donald Trump was able to do it. So in this artistic environment, this improvised drama comedy that was Celebrity Apprentice, this make-believe, I found him interesting and I was very comfortable working with him as a co-worker. I mean, I've been friends and worked with people who are very eccentric and I do very well. The idea that he would become in any way a position of power, I said at the time he began running, no matter how bad you think Donald Trump is, he's actually worse. And I still believe that. What were the indicators of that? I never heard him once. This is not true for any other human being I've encountered. I never heard him once make a joke or appreciate a joke. Yeah. The idea of actually appreciating wit, I never saw it happen. Not once. And if you play music, his foot doesn't tap. That's interesting. You know, you see him at the rallies doing this, you know, and I'm not making fun of how someone dances. You see him moving. It is out of time. And I believe, and I'm not qualified to say this, but you're asking my impressions I believe there's some sort of brain damage, and I believe that a complete and utter lack of shame is a superpower. If I were to say to you, Anna, you will get everything you want, and I mean everything you want, but you simply are not allowed to apologize to anybody for the rest of your life under any conditions, I don't think you could do it. No, I couldn't. Even if the stakes were something like world peace. I think you would still have a remarkably hard time summoning up that willpower. For him, it is trivial. And someone who does not apologize, remember, we have evolved in our ability to communicate, not to find the truth, but rather to convince others. And that evolution, which we confuse those two, means that somebody who is not aware that they are ignorant and who has no shame has never once felt that feeling that I believe you and I feel all the time, that warmth that spreads out from the chest and up the face that goes, oh. Right. I believe he's never felt that. You know, there was, I guess, that particular satisfaction that early on when it was sort of revealed that he was insecure about what was perceived to be like smaller hands. You mean he has a tiny cock that could not be clearer <laughs> on anybody I've ever seen in my life. 
it's also really remarkable how shaky he gets around someone who's taller than he is. And you're quite tall. I'm six foot seven, yeah. Penn, I find it fascinating that you haven't had a drink or experimented with drugs. And then you slipped in there that you lived on the streets for a minute. Will you tell us about these circumstances? I have been and still am a huge Bob Dylan fan. And when Bob Dylan got to New York, he was asked to write a bio to go out as a press release. And he wrote that he joined the carnival, hitchhiked, hopped trains, lived on the streets for years. I believed it. None of it was true. He actually went to the University of Minnesota and then drove comfortably to New York and then became a star instantly. What a mind-blowing disillusion. If Sorry, go on. <laughs> oh, man. Bob wouldn't have known a carnival worker if he was bit in the ass. This must have been devastating to you. No, uh, but, no. Because but I... at the time I found out, I'd already done it. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a person that you know that has hopped a freight train. Wow. I'm a person who's juggled in the park for money. Now, remember, it's very odd because my relationship with my parents was perfect. I called them every day. I had money hidden in my backpack for emergencies. It's why I try to avoid using words like homeless, because I had a home I was welcome in. And I was not destitute, although I pretended to be. I kind of said, I will live by juggling on the streets and by making jokes. But I had 100 bucks in my pack if I ever wanted to use that to eat. I just realized the other day that I believe in the house that belonged to my parents in the garage upstairs is that backpack. And I believe there's still $100 sewed into it. What do you need to do to hop a freight train? Oh, it's really hard. It seems like it. And you're sure you're going to die and it's miserable. Sure. I was in Canada, Montreal. And I'd been hitchhiking there with a sign. And apparently there'd been like a hitchhiker who got picked up and killed people. And it was in the news. So they weren't going to pick up a giant hippie. I was standing in the freezing cold for like four hours with a buddy. And there were train tracks 150 yards up yonder. I'm from Massachusetts. I've never said up yonder once before in my life. Uh, and uh, it was snowing and shit. And we had our backpacks on. And I said, well, let's go jump on that train. And it was going wicked slow. You know, trains move slow. But you also know that slow is relative. And so we got up next to the train. And I said to my friend, what should we do? And I said, I guess we run alongside it and grab onto the ladder on the side. So we ran. You know, I was 18. I could still run. And um, I ran and grabbed on and held on. And he, like four cars back, did that. And then the train starts speeding up and it starts getting colder. Oh, and you're still hanging on to the ladder. You're holding a ladder that's moving very, very fast. And it's moving faster all the time. And you go, huh, I guess this is how people die. We then did that for a remarkably long time, which I would imagine, knowing how people distort time, probably four or five minutes. And then I said, well, we can't do this for an hour. So I kind of maneuvered myself up and around, and then we were able to get ourselves kind of on top and move along until we got to the big freight train with many, many engines. Are you on top of the train now? Crawling, but it's nothing like when James Bond does it. Sure. It's not like you stand up and run and you look really good. It's like you crawl like a shrew looking helpless and disgusting 
hoping you won't die along snowy stuff with your hands freezing. It was not sexy. You would not have said, had you saw me crawling along the train, that's a guy I want to get with. You would have said, that is a helpless shrew crawling in the cold. And we got ourselves to like one of the engines that nobody was in. And the door was open and we went in. It was warm and it was heaven. Meanwhile, the train is rushing. And we were trying to get to Chicago. We were in Montreal and we were heading due north, which was a bad idea. What is north of Montreal? As far as you and I know, dragons. <laughs> sure, it's certainly not Chicago. No, it's certainly not Chicago. <laughs> and it's certainly not civilization. We were going up into that part of Canada you don't care about. The only thing you've ever thought about that part of Canada is, must be pretty, people probably go fishing. That's your entire knowledge. I guess I should have mentioned this. All of this is happening at night, oh, like 11 p.m. And now we're in a train that's moving full speed and we're warm. So who cares? Except we thought, you know, we've heard stories of people finding hippies in warm places and reprimanding them. So maybe bad things will happen now. But for right now, let's doze off. And it got to be morning and it started to slow down in the train yard. So we got ourselves dressed and bundled up. And as it slowed down to a slow speed, we jumped off the train and did that kind of roll thing that you do. And then pulled ourselves together and walked out to a road and found ourselves somewhere I still don't know where we were. And we hitchhiked for hours and finally got picked up by a milk truck that took us closer to the highway. And, you know, two days later, we were in Chicago. So that wasn't a bummer for the curtain to be pulled. Actually, it wasn't because it was stuff I wanted to do. He's not responsible for me. And his romanticizing of what happened, it was pretty good to, you know, spend a year and a half seeing all of America. And I can give you several reasons why I've never done drugs. And you will know that none of them are true because we don't have access to that in ourselves. You know, we're always alibying. We're making up stuff. But my mom and dad were teetotalers. My whole family were teetotalers. For religious reasons or for just... No, I don't even know why. You know, they always say, talk to your children about drugs. They never mentioned drugs to me. There was not even a bottle of wine in the house. And they never, ever said it was evil. It just, we didn't do it. I knew nothing about it. And I was talking to Christopher Hitchens. We were pretty friendly. I very much admire Christopher Hitchens. We referred to each other as friends. We didn't spend as much time as we would have liked. Certainly a week didn't go by without emails back and forth. And we got together whenever we were in the same zip code, you know. But Christopher Hitchens drank, as far as I could tell, all the time. And I drank never. And there were several half conversations about that. And at one point I said to him, you know, I might have an understanding of this. Who was the first person you thought of as a drinker when you were like 12 years old? And he said, Winston Churchill. And he said, who was the first person you thought of? And I said, Ronnie Peranto. And when you said a name that Christopher Hitchens didn't recognize, he went on high alert because Christopher Hitchens knew everything. And he said, I'm not familiar with that name. I said, he was in my grade school class. He got drunk, threw up on me, and then later wrapped his car around a tree. I said, different image than Winston Churchill. It was never a grown-up thing to me. I never saw grown-ups drink. Never. I saw my peers drink. I saw my peers do acid. I saw my peers on heroin. And it didn't seem they were interesting. That's one answer. Then the other answer is I was a huge fan of Lenny Bruce after he was dead because of my age. I was a huge fan of Jimi Hendrix. 
And I personify drugs and blame them for killing people who today I would like to see what they were doing artistically. That's another answer. I don't know if either of those are true. The other answer is that I perceive myself as someone who hates moderation. I don't enjoy it. I don't respect it. And so if I were to do drugs, and I very well may, it's not going to be a glass of wine with dinner. And it's not going to be a little bit of pot. It's going to be LSD and it's going to be big doses in every day. And it's not going to be a bump of cocaine to get harder at a party. It's going to be heroin every day. I appreciate the recognition of extremity. I don't think a lot of people are in touch with that idea. Well, we come back to how I enjoyed being around Donald Trump. There was a time while he was running for president the first time when the New York Times published Donald Trump's hate list based on his tweets and things he had said, who he hated the most. I was number seven. Hillary Clinton was number eight. Why? Because I was the first person that he knew personally who said publicly I would not support him for president. I went on one of my closest friends, Lawrence O'Donnell's show, and I said the gentlest thing a person could say. He said, you spent a lot of time with Donald Trump. Would you support him? And I said, there's no one I respect more in the world than Teller. I think Teller is the greatest mind there's ever been in magic. Teller is the greatest partner anyone's ever had. Teller is smart. Teller is kind. Teller is gentle. If he ran for president, I would not support him. I don't think he has the skills to do that job. Donald Trump is none of the things that Teller is. I liked working with him very much on television. I will not support him. Could you think of anything gentler to say? No. Donald Trump went crazy tweeting, saying, which I think was great, Penn was totally unknown before Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> I tweeted back, the name of the show is Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> anyway, he then started saying, well known to be the worst magic show ever a complete flop on Broadway. <laughs> and he went on to say how he hated me over and over again. And then, of course, we were playing on Broadway for our third time. How could we be on Broadway for our third time if we were totally on? Oh, never mind. Not important. But we used in our ads how much he hated me. Oh, brilliant move. It was gold. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
pen to shift course a tiny bit. I wanted to ask you about your sense of romance. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you first felt like you were in love? You know, I have friends who I'm now envious of. I have a friend who's a musician and a fabulous one. And you can be sitting with him at Starbucks and a woman can walk by him. And I tell you, I believe he falls in love with her perhaps deeper than I've ever been in love. You know, he is married and has sex with women on the road all the time and falls in love with them every single time. And I used to think that that was unfair, that when you said to somebody, I love you, that it should have all these caveats and the pretense or the pretend of predicting the future, that I should be able to look into your eyes and say, I love you. And that means something perpetual, something without end. I now think that that is foolish. I think that my friend's kind of love, that is a complete romantic, deep love for someone whose genes happen to fit right and who makes eye contact with them at a Starbucks, is certainly is valid. And I believe that I guarded, continue to guard my heart in my futile effort to tell the truth. And my idea of truth in terms of love has become perverted in that my idea of love includes predicting the future, which is impossible. All that being said, which I realize is an enormous caveat, in high school, probably 16 years old, and I still don't know why I haven't got a Nobel Prize for this, but I realized in high school that the smart girls with the long straight hair and the baggy sweaters and the glasses had essentially the same bodies as the stupid girls and that nobody was asking out the smart girls. So I got myself into advanced English and advanced sciences. And although they looked a little bit beatnicky, I was a full-blown hippie with eye makeup and hair down to the middle of my back. And I realized that they were reading Anna East Vin and Henry Miller, and all the seduction had been taken care of by professionals. <laughs> So I didn't have to fumble around at all. So where everybody talks about not having sex in high school, I don't talk about that because I did. Were you a good boyfriend? I was honest, and that has pluses and minuses. But the first girl I fell in love with was Anne Buchanan, and I'm still very close to her. I still talk to her weekly. We had 30 years that we didn't, so still may not be the right word. It may be again. And I think she would tell you that I was a serviceable boyfriend. I don't know what she'd say now. It gets complicated because I was a very bad student and I did very well on my SATs. And you were in advanced placement courses. For a while, enough to meet those girls. But it was a very bad school in now the fentanyl capital of the country. And my parents had saved for me to go to college because I would be the first one in our family to go to college I would have been. And I did well on the SATs, and I was National Merit Scholar, even though I had not good grades. So I could go to whatever college I wanted. And I went and visited different colleges, and all I saw was drug use and bad music, which is what high school was to me. Everybody was drunk and stoned and listening to horrendous music. And I said to my guidance counselor, if you can find a school where no one's doing drugs, I'll go. And my guidance counselor wasn't smart enough to say, well, why don't you go to MIT and be the stupidest student they've ever seen? Or why don't you go to West Point and be the weakest student they've ever seen? But he didn't. He said, you know, why don't you go to Hampshire College or Antioch? 
If someone had said, why don't you go to a hard school where you don't have a chance, they might have tapped into me, but they didn't. So I decided, much to the heartbreak of my parents, to not go to college and decided to simply hitchhike around the country like Bob Dylan didn't. And her father, who approved of me, when he found out I wasn't going to college, said, you have no right to waste your mind. And I said to him, you have no fucking right to tell me what to do with my mind, now do you? That caused a riff. <laughs> and uh, she also, I think, met a guy from France or something. And our dream, you know, was to move to Paris and be the great existential writer, you know. But it kind of fell apart. I don't really know why. And she's a was and is a wonderful person. And I was heartbroken. But that was probably my first love. And the thing is, as we've said much to her now, we say, you know, it was amazing because everyone else who was 16 in our school was doing this football cheerleader dating thing. We didn't do dating thing. We read Henry Miller and fucked. Yeah. <laughs> Penn, so my longtime listeners know that I have an inane list that I don't really talk about that much anymore because it's ridiculous. My dating experience is very, very minimal. Mm -hmm. Like a while back, I started thinking about the list of men in professions that essentially my friends shouldn't date or women shouldn't date. And it's stupid. It very much borders on offensive, but magician was my number one. Yeah, I would think so, yeah. Oh, so I'm not wrong. No, you're not wrong. First of all, magicians would pretend to like you, but every magician without exception is gay. Penn, elaborate on this. What do you mean? <laughs> no, I mean, the sensibility is essentially, even if you have sex with women, the sensibility is essentially that kind of vibe. It's mostly a joke, but it's also true. I've never dated a magician. No one's dated a magician. <laughs> I will try to articulate the problems you're feeling. People who get into magic, I'm talking now people who would be old enough for you to date. Everything has changed in the past 10 years. So the people that you're thinking of as magicians would be men, and they would be starting magic when they were 12 years old, and starting magic at 12 years old because they weren't popular and because they disliked other people and wanted to fool them in an unpleasant way to show that they were somehow superior. They learned magic in order to meet girls, and it failed, and that filled them with anger and rage. So they practiced more and more and more and did what Jerry Seinfeld says is every magic act. Here's a quarter. Now it's gone. You're an idiot. Now it's back. You're an asshole. Show's over. <laughs> there are male qualities colloquially called mansplaining and trying to alpha and not knowing your own limitations. These testosterone-driven psychoses that are manifested primarily in young boy magicians. Now, some of them, and I know them, get to be 18 or 19, and sometimes love saves them, and they find someone that actually loves them, and that chip on their shoulder goes away, and they go from having to prove something to actually having a toolbox of skills that can be used to bring joy to people. Those are the ones that are saved. Then there are others that aren't saved by love who continue to carry that chip on their shoulder and continue to think that the way to impress somebody is by showing that you can do something that they can't, ha, ha, ha. And I believe that's what you're feeling. Yeah, and I hate feeling patronized. 
That's all magic is. <laughs> magic is, by definition, manipulation. And now, oh God, I've been pushing for this for so long, but now there are people who don't look like me who are in magic. And that is a huge breakthrough. You know, magic is the bottom feeders of the arts, ventriloquism and mime and all of that at the bottom. And we're way behind other stuff. You know, we had, of course, Phyllis Diller, Joan Rivers, Moms Mabley, Ruth Buzzy, your other heroes of comedy, women in comedy. But comedy with women doesn't really explode to the 21st century. And all the interesting people in comedy now are female. That shift is running about 10 years, 15 years behind in magic. But I will guarantee you that within 10 years, well within 10 years, the number one magician in the world will be female or identify as female or will not be cis male. I guarantee you that. But it's been weird because I will give you a fact that will agree with everything you believe about magicians. The magic circle, which is the most prestigious magic organization in the world, and which I will add, I am not a member, did not allow women in their organization until the 90s. Then how did they expect to get laid? Which doesn't work, okay? I will tell you right now, give me a Stratocaster and give Bruce Springsteen a deck of cards, see who does better. That's all I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about how conspiracy theories are so prevalent these days. How would you describe the relationship between magic and skepticism? There are some magicians who believe that what they are doing or what they're supposed to do is allow people to dream and do wish fulfillment. That is not what modern magic is. Modern magic in the term of my brilliant partner is the unwilling suspension of disbelief. Skepticism must be built into magic or there's no form there. If you want to do willing suspension of disbelief, you go to Shakespeare, who says, we're on an island now. And you go, okay. Or he goes, this guy is king. And you've actually seen him in a deodorant commercial. Okay, he's king. But in magic, we try to make you unwilling suspension of disbelief. Yes. So I believe, and I will say, David Blaine disagrees with me, and some other magicians disagree with me. I'm not speaking for all magic. I'm speaking for my theory of magic. I believe that the magician's job is to ultimately tell the truth. David Blaine wants you to leave his show believing things he knows aren't true. I do not want you to ever do that. I want you to leave our show with me not having distorted reality from the things I believe. I can't teach you what reality is because I don't know what it is. But I can promise you that I will not distort in a way that I know is false. Skepticism is really, really important. We have seen what happens when people let that go. We've also seen what happens when people want to get the kick of discovery without doing the real work of discovery. And the idea that there is a rigorous chain of understanding to be a skeptic has been completely lost. And now skeptic is, no, I don't believe they were rioting in the Capitol. That's not skepticism. <laughs> that is self-delusion. And we have checks and balances. They're new. I mean, they're only 300 years. But we have checks and balances for how we are skeptical and how we learn. And that's what the Constitution of, hope I got the name right, Constitution of Knowledge. It's Jonathan Rausch. The Constitution of Knowledge, a defense of truth. Yeah, that's it, yeah.
Hey, Ashley. Hello. Hey, Ashley. Hi. My name is Pam. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Ashley, I so appreciated your letter for multiple reasons. Oh. Will you tell our listeners what's going on? Yeah. So I'm originally from California and I moved to the UK about eight years ago to be with my partner, Ben, after we met online. But recently we've decided that we want to move to California. So we had to apply for a green card. And to do that, we had to get married. We explained that to our families. We didn't you know, want to really talk about it ever again, actually. We were just like, hey, we just don't want to keep this from you, but we're not really going to address this. But since then, family members on both sides have just been doing like really strange things. Like my mom will text me and be like, oh, does this old family friend know that you guys got married? And I'm like, well, no, because it's not a thing. And she's like, well, can I tell her? And I'm like, no, but like, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of like robbing her of that experience. And then same with other family members on his side. You know, one asked me to see my ring And when I told her I didn't have one, she got like visibly upset. Was like, I just don't understand. And was like kind of mumbling about it to someone else. And it just feels like people are crossing these boundaries. But I feel like at the same time, I wonder if my boundaries are a bit too harsh. And if maybe I'm taking this experience from people that, you know, obviously means a lot to them. Your letter reminded me of a dear friend of mine who didn't want to have kids. Mm. And the digestion of that information is so hard for people to wrap their heads around. It's as though they need to figure out this puzzle for you. Mm. How does this affect your relationship? How is he feeling about it? And are you guys on the same page? Yeah, I think he also gets uncomfortable, especially when it escalates to people, you know, bringing up if we're going to have kids and what great parents would be and like all these things. We're like, we're not doing that. We kind of regret opening this door for them to feel like they are able to say these things. But also, you know, occasionally sometimes he'll joke around and be like, oh, my wife. And I'll be like, (laughs) have you always felt this way, Ashley? Yeah. I mean, even when I was younger, I never really dreamt of like a wedding or like being a wife. And I never really related to any of that. And then it's not until I got older, I was like, oh, no, I'm adamant. Like, I don't want that. Like the public identity or the idea of long term? Yeah, it's not so much like the commitment. It's more just like the expectations that it brings and the connotations for it. I don't want to like rag on marriage because, you know, it's great for a lot of people. But you use the word regret. And that makes me want to ask you a question. Why did you tell anybody? We're very close with our families and we didn't want to keep any secrets. And especially because it is part of our move and things like that, it might have just brought some questions. You know, we'd eventually have to be like, oh yeah, by the way, we have to get married. I do have a couple of friends who got married and didn't even mention it to their closest friends until four or five years later. And they got married for reasons that were similar to yours. I mean, I'm against marriage being a state institution anyway. And I checked with lawyers and there was no way I could be guaranteed custody of my children if my wife died without being married. So I got married in order to raise children. But it seems like if you're going to have no secrets, it seems like the situation you're in is just one you're going to be in. I don't think it involves that much suffering to say, hey, I'm not your wife. Cut it out. And I don't have a ring because it's not that kind of marriage. And I don't think we're going to have children. But the marriage had nothing to do with that. We wanted to live in California. The story is over. When are you guys moving to California? 
maybe like two months. And I assume that you guys have sort of explained like, well, yeah, we got married so we can continue to be together. Yeah. Right now, you know, they gossip amongst themselves or whatever. And they're like, we just Mm -hmm. don't get it. You know, like they don't even behave like they're married. They wanted to keep it a secret. There's no wedding. Like, what does this mean? Or whatever they're saying. I hope that you're not bearing the brunt of it being there in terms of being a woman and being around his family, I assume more than your family. But I imagine that you probably are. Yeah. The comments are often made towards me. Right. And, you know, it's not just about the marriage stuff. Like just an hour ago, there was a whole conversation telling us what to do about the move. And, oh, we shouldn't move so soon. We should actually wait. And I should try and postpone my job offer. And I should do this. And just, Why? I like to have their opinions heard. So they want you guys to stay? Yes. Yeah. Did that make your partner question the move? No, it's more like the practicality. So like he has an apartment, you know, he's like, oh, I want to sell it. And they're telling him what to do instead and doing all these things. Is he able to stand up to his family? Like, is he like, no, 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 we're doing this. Like the plans have been made. Yeah, he tried. And do you feel like he hears this frustration in you? Definitely. Oh, good. I'm thinking that they might be nervous about like losing their son or I don't know. They're worried that maybe you don't love him enough. Right. Yeah. But it's of a different generation. They are at a place in life where all they do is worry about other people in the most annoying of ways. When did you guys get married? Last year. Okay. So it has been a minute. Did you tell them right away? Yeah, we told them before it was happening because it was, you know, COVID times. It was like a courthouse wedding and his parents had to be our witnesses and stuff. So it was a whole thing. Well, then they should be used to this idea. Does your partner have siblings? Yeah, he has an older sister. Is she married? Yeah, she got married earlier this year, which I think was another problem was that we got married before her. It's just, yeah. What? (laughs) Who's complaining about that? Is she? No, no like specific comments were made about that, but it was just kind of the attitude towards it, like making a mockery of marriage. You wrote that in your letter. Yeah. It's just absurd though. And I'm sorry that it makes you feel bad. But that was kind of the question. Like, do I just suck it up? Like let him make the comments, which is kind of what you were saying, Penn. It's easy enough to brush under the rug. I also think that most, not just a lot, but most of what you're saying is entirely unrelated to the marriage. People give you advice. People who love you give you advice. And that advice is always wrong, but that's just because they love you. And I think that it's possible to spin annoying in your own head into this is an expression of love. And I realize I'm going way out of line with the other two people on the call, but I don't think they're doing anything wrong. I don't think you're doing anything wrong. It's just the way people interact. And someone saying to you, oh, you should stay longer in the UK. You shouldn't go to California means, God damn, we love you. And the you didn't have a ceremony that bothers us because we want to celebrate with our friends what a wonderful person our son met. And we don't get to do that. And you say, oh, and these are the reasons you don't get to do that. And they go, Oh, yeah, we understand that, but boy, we wanted to do that. And you say, I understand you wanted to do that, but boy, I didn't. And you go, okay. 
Oh, well, yeah. Penn, there's so much wisdom in what you are talking about. And it speaks to sort of the larger idea of once you get in the habit of generosity with family, like I'm really close with my in-laws, but I really took the relationship with them like I was trying to really win them over. Like I shower them with love. We eloped and we didn't tell anybody But what has been easier for me as I get older is kind of being more generous with my affection and love than other people are to me. I wonder if it's the idea of like, I can't wait for you guys to visit. I can't wait. There's so many things I want to show you. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's that kind of extension as they're feeling out of control with this. You know, to me, it speaks to like they don't have control over your decisions and they have to still continue to digest that. I'm sorry that it's been a year. I think it'll go forever. You do? Yeah, and I think that's okay. Do you think that she should be proactive and re-emphasize that idea? I think that when it comes up, you say what's in your heart and you understand that they're doing the same and that you may disagree. And I mean, I hate to go to junkie on this, but you can't always get what you want, but you find some time to get what you need. And I think that having in-laws who love you is not the worst thing that can happen to a person. Yeah, Ashley, I would think of some thoughtful gifts. You know, like a goodbye idea or like, I just want you to have this because I've been thinking about you and we're going to miss you. This might be like a customer service, kind of going above and beyond with generosity. I think the act of reassuring them over and over with just love, compliments and generosity will make your life easier in that regard. Penn, what do you think? I just think that when you bring other people into your life who are, in a certain sense, forced to love you, forced to care about you, that's just the way human beings interact. And I believe if you'd had a big wedding and invited them all, almost every problem you're having now, you would still be having. Totally. They would still not want you to be moving away. So I believe that the problems that you're having are universal. And if you can solve them, I would pass them on to everyone else and win yourself a much-deserved Nobel Peace Prize. I'll work on it. (laughs) I think this is great. I think that you have enough change in your life that you don't need to define these other ideas right now at all or ever. I guess the silver lining is that, like Penn was saying, they care about you. Yeah. It is hard to not respond to passive aggressiveness with passive aggressiveness. And don't even try. Respond with passive aggressiveness. I'm fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm silent usually, but I hadn't really connected that, you know, these issues are probably connected, you know, the ideas, what they expected or what they want because they care about us. You don't need to put the pressure on yourself to define anything right now. You're making a big move. It's going to be awesome. It'll be hard. They'll miss you. There'll be more drama before you guys leave. But then it will inevitably start to disintegrate just because there's a massive time change. (laughs) 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 Oh, Ashley, I really am excited for you guys. I like a transition like this. I think this is really great. Congratulations on your new job. Thank you. You guys are going to have a whole new adventure here. Well, thank you guys. Thanks, Ashley. Bye, Ashley. Bye.
Penn, you're so wise. Oh, I don't know. No, it's true. But you know, her problems had nothing to do with this marriage. I agree with you. Oftentimes, what I've learned from doing the podcast and talking to callers, we started in 2015, is that usually everybody knows what the answer is, kind of, but they kind of need to talk it through a little bit. They need to feel like their feelings are valid and that they were heard. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in youth, you spin out on those things. Yep. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello. Hi, Anne. You're here with Pendulette. Will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And nice to meet you guys. So about a year ago, I met someone online and we started dating and it was long distance and it just ended up flourishing as a happy, healthy relationship. We would see each other every couple of weeks, sometimes more, sometimes a little less. And we were developing like a very deep connection and falling in love. And it felt great. But about eight months in, my partner said that it was just becoming too difficult for them and that they wanted to end the relationship. And it felt right that it should end. You know, I wouldn't want someone to be unhappy with me, but it hurt a lot. And the question I had was like, how do you get over someone whom you loved and cared a lot about? And it didn't end badly and you still care about them. Like, how do you move on from that, essentially? Oh. (laughs) When the relationship was good and it just wasn't working for, like, circumstances and things like that. Have you had contact with your ex much? At the beginning, like, right after the breakup, yes. Recently, it's been about two months since we broke up, but no, because it's just been too difficult. I made that distinction. I was like, I just can't keep talking. It was too painful. I am so sorry. And there's almost like a particular torture for when something felt good. Yeah. So he initiated the breakup. Yes, he did. Did it feel surprising? Yes. In the instant that it happened... I knew that this particular person was having a hard time with it. They definitely craved proximity that at the time I wasn't able to give. I wasn't against making a change to be with them more permanently, but I needed more time to make that move. And I just don't think it was enough for them at that time. So, yeah. It wasn't soon enough? It wasn't soon enough. There wasn't enough time spent together You know, even though there was strong love there and care for one another, 
I think this person really needed someone there with them more consistently. And I just couldn't offer that at the time. It wasn't enough for them. There's a lot of very wise philosophy that just says that you shouldn't expect not to suffer. And what makes love beautiful is that it's temporary. As the bard from Minnesota, Bob Dylan, wrote, uh, or was summed up by a computer, time passes, love fades. I think the answer is that you're going to suffer. And that suffering is also part of the beauty of what you had. I don't believe in closure, really. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's like we yearn to like put things to bed, to not have them roll around in our head at night. And to solve the puzzle, you know, like if a caller describes like an affair or something like that, I always encourage them to not ask questions about Mm -hmm. time and place and whatever, because then like the visual continues to cement and you're living in the past. Yeah. But having said that, I do want to validate you. There is something that feels a little bit cruel about the surprise factor and you feeling like, oh, if I'd only moved, then we would be together. Yeah. I kind of put a little blame on myself for a while there. I've stepped back a bit from that, but for a bit, I was like, it could have, it could have, it could have, and it should have, or it would have. And I know that's not true. That's right. Your narrative might need to shift for your own growth a little bit. Mm -hmm. You may have romanticized the relationship and I don't love it that he blamed you not moving sooner on the breakup. Yeah. And they were so great in so many ways. And I really don't have like negativity towards them or what happened. I know you're very complimentary of this person. I'm a teacher, so I think kindness takes you a long way. So even in those really difficult situations, like you can be kind. I can feel that you love generously. And I know that because you describe him as like a great guy and like an undramatic relationship. It was hard because he was so honest about it. He was like, this is how I'm feeling. And that's why it was easy to step back from it and say, sure, we should end this. I don't want to make you unhappy because I care about you. It was just like, how do I move on from someone who was that kind of person? Like I had a very poor previous relationship and breakup. So it was just so different. And that's why it was like more heartbreaking. Well, yeah, I think that it's so hard to accept part of what makes life in general and love more specifically. Part of what makes that beautiful is that it's temporary and there's always suffering and there's always longing. I mean, Basho, the great poet from Japan said, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. And I think even when you have something beautiful, you still long for it. And that sadness was inevitable. And I think you could have fun enjoying the suffering as part of the love. Yeah. Just because you asked advice from a psychotic, I thought you should. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, and the teacher and me appreciate your Basho reference. And- <laughs> so I did recognize that one. I also don't really believe in the idea of a soulmate. Okay. I think that there's a lot of really wonderful people out there. Absolutely. There's no such thing as a soulmate. This is one chapter and there'll be another bunch of them. I think it's really strong that you decided to cut off communication and it sounds like you stuck to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been hard. The only time I reached out, his family went through something and I just said, I hope they're doing okay. And there was a thank you. It was very brief. No other contact. But I do take what you're saying, Anna, like about there's no soulmates because I do think I do have an abundance of love to give. 
had been told that by previous partners. They're like, you're a great person. You offer so much. And that's like the part of the pain. It's like longing for someone to fully recognize that is part of the pain, I think. Do you live in an urban area? Yes, I do. I live in the Northeast. The sad truth is that it feels like time is truly the only balm. I don't want to tell you to go out there. And I would say that to some people, like distraction is also really helpful. And I do think that that is true. But like Penn suggested, maybe there's something to be done with this hurt. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about getting a kiln? <laughs> I've thought about getting a pet. Not quite a kiln, but you know. There won't be, you know, a replacement for it. Only time, just the long, slow trudge of time. But I'm just impressed with how you're kind of working through this. I don't know if you should get a pet because I do want you to be able to travel when you want to. That's actually something I got my passport renewed after the breakup. Great. I did a lot of stuff I hadn't been doing. I love that. Sometimes distraction helps when you need a break from, you know, trying to figure things out. I suggest acceptance. I think you can sit in one place and just feel it and let yourself feel it and it's fine. Being sad is part of life. Longing is part of life. Regret is part of life. Wallowing in it can be a fine idea. You can wallow in Italy. (laughs) I like that. I'll say this. I definitely have no regrets. But sadness and longing, I do. And the desire to travel, I do. So I'll sort of mix Anna's <laughs> and yours, Pen, doing both. You know what I really admire about you, Anne, is that you aren't going to like a what happened place. Yeah. I think that's really healthy. I can't wait for you to be with somebody that is like, I don't ever want to leave your side. I just want to squeeze you and like love you forever. And you're the most amazing person. And it will happen. But I really like Penn's suggestion. You're a thoughtful, empathetic person. And it sounds like you are still very open. Like you still have a very much an open heart, which is amazing. The fact that you were drawn to a good guy, that you guys broke up tragically but civilly is a huge testament to where you are. I think you're wonderful. Me too. (laughs) I think you're both wonderful as well. And thank you. And I guess you're right. It's just about sort of living in it and also living my experiences that I think I did put to the side a bit as I focused more on the relationship. And listen to Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. It'll help. Okay. And like Penn said, being sad is okay. Heartbreak helps us grow, you know? Yeah, that's the one thing I've been honest about. I've been telling people I'm still sad. Good. That's a fine way to be. I can't express how happy I feel having been able to talk to you guys. Oh, babe. Thank you. My heart is with you. Fuck, I've been there. (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I am definitely going to take both your advice. I'm going to sit in it, but also seek out what makes me happy. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. Very nice to meet you. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. You gave such beautiful advice. My advice in both cases was suffer. Yeah, but your advice (laughs) is to essentially, like, this is this time right now. And think about the largeness of life. Yeah, and the fact that this is what we were dealt. Yeah. Her heartache was dealt to her at birth. Yeah. It's just part of life. It's the way it goes. You were just great. Just wonderful. Very wise. 
I think that groups and clubs and tribalism is not something that I grew with. I'm not a patriot because of where I happen to be born. I believe that I am either one of one or I am one of seven billion. I don't have a choice in between. I love that. That is succinct and I think it's very hard for us to examine our sense of Americanism. It's hard to distance and not enough people do it. All the things we say that are good about Americans are good about everybody in the world. 100%. We just happen to be born within these boundaries that have been established. Oh, I thought you were going to quote Bruce Springsteen. Oh. (laughs) We both happen to be born within these boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) Penn, thank you so very much. I find you just completely enjoyable and very, very wise. Well, this was a blast, and I thank you. 